You're listening to Future Theater Radio with Bill and Nancy Burns, right here on the Dark Matter Radio Network and PSN Radio. Hi, everybody. It is the last Monday in April, I believe. What is the 25th? Exactly. Last Monday in April, we are your co-host, Bill. That's me and Nancy. Hello, everybody. Burns. And this is April 25th, 2016. We are broadcasting on Future Theater from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Solbury on a wonderful spring day in the state of Pennsylvania. And with us tonight is the wonderful Chris Brown, uh, upcoming host of Spy Watchers, and our producer, Angel Espino, the Jackal. Hola. And our guest tonight Mm -hmm. is from the National UFO Reporting Center in the state of Washington, Peter Davenport. I'm so excited, and I, yeah, I get that's great. Shout, yeah. out, shout out to Amy. Amy found Peter for us, and Amy is going to step back into private life for a bit. So just a big shout out and a big thank you for Peter. Um, I am so excited about Peter Davenport because he's one of my personal heroes, and I can't wait to talk to him. So just going to get ready, get ready, boys. Because, yep. you know, the number one thing I would talk about to him the whole time is the silo. I, I could never. I thought ever... you were going to say the Super Bowl. No. Why? <laughs> Why? Joke. Oh, because there's somebody else named Peter Davenport, isn't there? No, 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 no. Because what no, else would you huh? talk to him about, honestly? Oh, no, no, no. The silo. Well, of course, what you want to talk to him about is. Living in a silo. But he doesn't no, live he doesn't in a silo. He doesn't but... live there at all. But, okay, so, and, and just in your honor, Chris Brown, I have. I've I've been going through um, all uh, anybody can do this. You can go to Peter's site, Peter Davenport's site. Just go to futuretheater.com, click the link, click his name, and you will get lost in more sightings than well, he takes he has basically taken the job very seriously of of cataloging sightings, okay? And he's doing everything you would dream a person would do in terms well, of he, cataloging. Well, he's also it looks like from what George Filer on Filer's Files right. has uh, published, that there really is kind of a tandem reporting center going on because Filer is actually reporting stuff. And, yeah, but um, I don't think anybody has done the job the way Peter has. No, he hasn't. No, Peter is so the most complete and meticulous cataloger of um, – UFO eyewitness testimony. Okay, so now, Chris, I'm putting into the Skype just for you okay. this particular page of sightings, and, and just scroll down to the artist's conception. It is so mind-blowing that I immediately thought, you know, you want to compare and contrast. And uh, we will talk tonight about, because one of the things Peter has noticed is the preponderance of orb sightings. They've right, grown. exactly. So, yeah. And I also reported my encounter to, to the UFO uh, Reporting Center with Peter, and so uh, he has my case on there, too. So that was uh-huh. the first thing I was referred so to. So now you got some questions to ask him, like, hey, what's up with my case? You guys look into it? <laughs> well, he what's going knows. on? It's about Any feedback case? you can give me? You know, I remember the blubbering idiot at that time. They called him up crying because I was so freaked out over the whole thing that happened days <laughs> after really? my encounter. Oh, yeah, I Really like like me. nobody else would be a blubbering idiot if something like that happened to him. Oh, uh, yeah. I suppose so, but you uh, know? you're not the only I, one, my friend. Not the only I, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
I well, know. so so how soon after this sighting did you call him? Uh, days, probably. It would have to be um, within a week or just as soon as I found out who who was. It took me a while to find out who these people were. Like I say, the only guy right, I knew was right. my friend and Bill. That's, you know, and that's that's so. quite frankly what um, this show. If it does nothing else this week. It, it you know a lot of people know who Peter Davenport is, but if you happen to not know who he is, uh, at least write the numbers down. It, because if you see something, you really are going to want to call somebody. And and we at UFO Magazine used to be one of the destinations that people would call until we couldn't take it anymore. Um, Peter has a procedure so that if you call um, nowadays, I think he's had a lot of prank calls just in the very he has. Complained. He has told me that 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 was his thing. Was he had told me that he had had over hundreds of phone calls a day, and so that I could imagine it. It would get him from from every direction. They just well, did you out. get right through? Do you remember? No, it was actually on a recorder. Okay. I'd had to left a message on the recorder, and that's where I became the blubbering idiot. So, okay, but uh, <laughs> it, it wasn't one of those recorders you could press three and then redo it, right? You're like you're. What do you mean you can press three and redo it? It was like some recorders you could do that. Really? Right? Yeah. You, you say if you want to um, add to your message or change the message, <laughs> or, press or, three, and yeah. then uh, and then it rewinds and allows you to re-record. I didn't know that. Was yeah, that, is really that no, it's very old. Yeah, I've been doing that for years, Nancy. It's but, but that's the whole plot of the movie, uh, plot point of the movie Swingers. In the movie Swingers. Is it really? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, exactly. In, in that movie, you'll see the fella, uh, Vaughn, I believe it is. Vince, Vo- Vince, Vince Vaughn. Vaughn, yep. Vince Vaughn, yep. Vince leaves the most dreadful. Um, you know, he start, it starts out okay. You know, and then then, he, then it goes on like a couple of words too long, and then he kind of starts to get mad, and he tries to back out, and then he's just, and eventually he's just cursing, and and and, and it's a terrible phone message, um, one of the best. Of, That's a Vince Vaughn for you. Exactly. Yeah, it is. <laughs> he's awesome. Vince Vaughn's a great actor. Yeah, he is. Well, he, was, he was good in True Detective. And John Fervreau, who uh, directed that movie. Mm-hmm. And uh, was a co-star in it. Also directed the Jungle Book, which I saw, by the way. And I did too. Phenomenal movie. Really? Why? Why? I love this movie. Are you kidding me? Oh my it's, god, it's so good. Why? It's it's a remake. It's a cartoon, right? No, but it's, it a, it's it went a live by action. The cartoon very much. So much. Oh yeah, yeah, the yeah. Cartoon. It was just right with it. Only thing it that didn't perfect. have is it had the female voice for the snake, which mm. big deal. Wait, Other wait, than that, is you it know, a cartoon or is it live? No, no. The original was a cartoon. The new the and the remake is a live action. See what Disney's doing is they're taking all their old original cartoon properties and they're turning them into live action films. They did Cinderella. They're doing Pinocchio with um, Robert Downey Jr.'s. Uh, it's plain Geppetto. Huh? That's ah. So they're doing, Disney's so like doing amazing so who's things. In, who's in Jungle Book? Oh, the voices is Bill Murray plays um, uh, Baloo. Uh, Christopher Walken plays King Louie. Uh, I don't know the little kid. He's uh, the, the kid, the main kid. Um, Gary know, Shandling's last film. Gary Shandling is in that. Yeah, his last the film. the very yeah. first yep. word of the whole yep. entire movie, by the way, was well, are, Gary Shandling. But, 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 but are they the, voices? Uh, but are they voices? Yeah, yeah, they're all voices of animals. All voices, all voices of animals. Uh, I don't know the Magli. Uh, what is it, Magli? Mag- Mowgli? Mowgli. I don't know the kids, the, the kid who plays Mowgli. I don't know his name in real life, but he was awesome. And we look, and, and some people are criticized his acting. You know, it's a little. Sp- look, it, there's nothing harder to do than do a movie like this because it's all CGI. Now it looks amazing. The way that they, they did the animals looks 
really, really realistic. And so, incredible. in other words, it's real it's animals, CGI. CGI mouse. No, 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 no. The, everything was CGI in this movie. Except everything. for the real kid. Except for the kid. He's literally in a green room running around doing all these things, and then they're CGI in the entire world yeah, around him. I would call that animated personally. I but really it's, would. But it's, yeah, but it's made to look real. That's the thing. It's made to look as realistic as possible, and it looks amazingly real. Amazing. Really? The animals look so realistic. The environment looks just like a real place. And you know, for, to know how hard it is to do these Lord. kind of movies, and for mm-hmm. actors, and especially a young kid to do well, this kids, kind of movie, yeah, phenomenal. Yeah, he's, he's phenomenal. Yeah. In fact, I would, I would put, I'll go out on the limb right now and say he deserves an Oscar nomination for this movie. He is that Good I would movie. agree. You know, He's I would agree. He didn't overact. He didn't nope. do anything. He perfect. He the part perfect. Perfect. Like, know. I haven't seen an adaptation from a cartoon or, or anything that was this true to the source and still just, you know, it had his own life. It wasn't, you know, dictated by what came before it. It's good. It's true to the source, but it, it's so much fun on its own, and it's a, it's a greatly done adaptation. Really, really is. It's good to hear. I thought it was just your basic Bambi. No, you know, that no, you take no. your children to go and say. No, there's a lot of violent stuff it's in it. Make it's like, it's, it's going to make a billion yeah. dollars at the box office, by the easily. way. It's yep, easily. easily. It's already Which I called, by the way. We did. I called we it a couple weeks ago. Well, said you know it, what? But it's the, wor- the worst movie I think I've ever seen in in a very long, long time. Uh, I t- we turned it off really quickly. London Has Fallen. Have, have you seen, seen that? Oh, no, it's bad. No. That's right. I haven't seen it. Watch it. I can't wait to see your reaction because it's bad. It's so amateur. So many levels bad. But that's why I haven't seen it. I, I heard it was amateur, and I saw the trailer, and I was like, "Yeah, that's amateur." Yeah, the trailer was. Yeah, I, I mean, that. you know, way over the top. I mean, that was where whoever built the trailer built the trailer from junk. Really, I, the trailer is obviously the best part. Ever. I mean, it's like a cheap spinoff from another uh, Has Fallen movie. Was was it Washington Has Fallen or yeah, like yeah, Olympus. The White House Has Fallen Olympus. or something? That like one. That. This, this yeah, is like a cheap it. spinoff sequel kind of wannabe to that. That's what, like, what it when is. The, when the credits are rolling in the beginning, you almost get the impression that that they buy pay. You know, the, the, this was done by people's children, almost as a mm-hmm. money laundering scheme. Let's just push money through. <laughs> you know, because the camera work is so amateur. It's shocking, really. You know, um, geez. Anyway, so don't watch London Has Fallen, but it's made a lot of money. It's, you know, advertised. Really, has it? I think a, I a certain eh. amount. Who knows? I think it did okay, but I don't think it's made a whole lot. Well, of the money. Jungle Book box office—it's up to nine hundred million or something. Really? Yeah. Well, no, no, not that much. The uh, the yeah. Jungle Book made sixty-one million this past weekend. Uh, it's uh, it's up to uh, 533 worldwide, which is a phenomenal number for the second week of this movie. Especially, this is not a tempo movie like a Batman vs Superman or Captain America or one of these. This is like a kids movie adaptation. You know, th- nobody expected this movie to be as big as it is. And it, I, I I said it in on the roundtable, and I'll say it again: this movie's going to make a billion dollars worldwide. It it is that good. It's going to be one of the few. That and there's gets also to that not plateau. any real good movies coming out for another couple more weeks. Which yeah, Civil War is the next one. For, yeah, you could see yeah. this movie become number one next week too. Easy. Yeah. Oh yeah. Until Civil War comes out, I don't think anybody's going to take this. What movie is down. Civil War? Uh, what is Civil War? Uh, Captain America Three: Civil War. Oh, Captain America Three. Okay. Yep. yep. Which uh, <laughs> that's the number one movie I want to see this year. Well, as so a grown good. up, as a grown up, I can tell you that um, Bill and I have access to Amazon Prime, which is a really good movie service now. You won't be able to see Civil War on Amazon Prime, not yet. Uh, no, but we also <laughs> have, and we have Netflix. 
But um, so we've been kind of tr- crashing around. And so last night, two nights ago, I think we watched Bullet because I've never seen it before. Oh, the one with Tupac? Uh, no, 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 no. The no, one with is, no, the original Steve McQueen. Steve McQueen. Oh, gotcha. Okay. And uh, most importantly, most guys, many guys, feel this is the best car chase ever. This yeah, is the car it, chase. It's like the man's movie. Uh, well, this is the car chase through San Francisco that you you've seen it a million you've seen it a million times where the cars are hopping. As they, you know, go over the hills. The little, the green Mustang, the bullet yep. car. Yep. Oh, yeah, I've seen it. It's yep. a great yeah. Mustang. Yeah. But then, then the. I other, don't know if I would say that's the greatest chasing ever, but. Well, it's the a good chasing. car chase, the, the greatest one I always thought was um, the, the, the French, French Connection. Connection. The French Connection. French Connection. In other words, back in the day when these had to be done real, just, you know, I mean, even, um, even as far back as. Um, Who's the fella? Not Lon Chay. Who's the earliest guy? The comic. The uh, comic. Charlie Charlie Chaplin. Uh, even better than Charlie Chaplin. He's considered better than Charlie Chaplin. Yeah, with a really long face. Oh, Buster Keaton. Buster Keaton. Some of his setups. I don't know about his, better than Charlie Chaplin. Uh. Yeah, he's pretty amazing because of his ar- ar- acrobatic setups. You know, he'll you know where where houses fall. You know, one take. They can only they, they can only do these things in one. Oh, take. it's that wall falling on him and he's standing like through that. the I mean, window. He's, he's yeah. known for his not his gags, but his you know hanging on a big clock. That's Buster Keaton. The guy. No, no it's the not. That's clock. not Buster Keaton. It's not. No. Who's thinking about it? Is it was um, <laughs> wrong. No, no, no. It was you know, Langdon is the guy's name. No, no, no. The guy, not the guy in Metropolis. I'm talking about the guy hanging on the big clock. Right. That's not Buster Keaton. Oh, I'm going to have to find that out. Anyway, Chris, did you happen to see the picture that I sent to the artist conception on that page? <laughs> we got yeah. going on something else just as I, <coughs> excuse me, just as I said, was looking at that uh, at something and then, no, I didn't. I didn't. Because I, I, right I, I want to I hear your, uh, Buster, Ke- Buster Keaton, Buster Keaton. Okay. Guys are saying in chat, hi, chat. Hi, chat. Hi, chat. Howdy, chat. I, I still say the best chasing ever is uh, Phantom Menace, the pod racing. Love that. Yeah, but see, that's only drawing. It's not real. Think about if you had to, if you had to be pod driving racing. the car yourself with a few stunt drivers, you know, and you really had to time it properly. On and again, was 10 street. years old, Nancy, and he beat everybody, oh, including right. Sabulba. Well, you and know, Sabulba last- always wins. Steve McQueen movie, uh, The Hunter, which was a great movie, actually. But it was the last Steve McQueen movie. And, you know, that had some great car chase scenes in it, Okay, that's what I – was Allie McGraw in The Hunter? Uh, No, she was in The Thomas Crown Affair. No, no, no. She was also in, I believe – okay, I'll look it up right now, The Hunter. I'm going to look it up as we see – because she was also in a car chase one with Steve McQueen. You know, all kidding aside, The Born Identity actually had a really, really good chasing also in twenty uh, two thousand two. The original Born Identity. Yeah, uh, with I like those movies. Oh, the chasings in those movies are awesome. Yeah, The Hunter. Let's and see. I am looking at the pictures right now. Those are interesting there, Nancy. Yeah, I mean, I thought immediately, have you ever seen, I mean, you perhaps have seen something like it. Have you ever seen anything like it? Yeah, well, it's hard. It's uh, of course I was six feet away from it, and I don't know how close it looks like his his picture here is, but it looks like he was a ways away. Okay, well, let's let's put that see. link into the real chat, not just. Uh, so yeah, that looks just like what you, almost what you described there, uh, Chris. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's one of those beautiful yeah. renditions because it is wall to wall. Let me put it in the real chat too. Yeah, I'm gonna also put it on the on our Facebook um, page by the way, PSN Radio Facebook page. What happened? What, my birthday? What do you mean? Oh wait. You're coming out of my. Mich- you're coming out of my. Because you 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 lost your thing. 
Yeah, she lost her thing, folks. Yeah, that's bad. True story. True story. <laughs> so delicate, these little wires. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, um, uh, so uh, anyway, so yeah. So that, I do, okay, I have one joke tonight. Only one, because I think it's good enough, perhaps. She's got a joke. All I've right. got only one, though. And it's, um, it, it combines Jewish and blind people. I like it already. Mm-hmm. Huh. Never set a joke up like that. No, man. <laughs> yeah, now I've got to go find but it. But I like it already. That's it. It's, it's, okay, it sounds on. good. I've got to find yeah. it. I've got to find it. Um, sounds interesting. Okay, so anyway, so um, so there's a Jewish man. There's a rabbi and a blind man. Okay. A moil? On, sitting on a park bench. Not a okay. moil. Not a moil, you okay. You can't be a moil when you're a blind. A blind man. Okay, oh, okay, bl- gotcha. That'd be kind of hard, yeah. A rabbi sits, okay, a blind man is sitting on a park bench, okay? A rabbi sits down next to him. The rabbi is chomping on a piece of matzah, taking pity on the blind man. He, if it would have been a moil, it would have been chomping on something else, but never mind, go ahead. Right, right. You, you're, we're not going to the moil. But but now, by the way, um, Kevin is completely okay with these jokes. He he, he, he even made a couple of really cool ones in okay, Twitter. So, really good ones. So, okay, I was worried about that. I didn't want to offend you. Rule number two, don't break up the pattern of a joke. I, dis- yeah, I disagree. True. I disagree. Since I'm never good at it, it only helps. No, it doesn't. <laughs> yeah. You're all over the place like a drunk driver on a highway. <laughs> I got to get going, Nancy. Okay, so, so... Okay, tell the joke, then I'll retell it, and you'll see which one is okay, funny. Okay, so a blind man is sitting on a park bench. A rabbi sits down next to him. I'm reading it. The rabbi is John had pizza matzo. Taking pity on the blind man, he breaks off a piece... And gives it to the blind man. Several minutes later, the blind man turns, taps the rabbi on the shoulder, and says, "Who wrote this?" <laughs> hey, that was a punchline. Who wrote this? Or who wrote this? Who wrote this? Okay, so here's the joke. Go ahead, Bill. Please help me out here. So a rabbi's walking down the street, chewing on a piece of matzah. Uh, and he sees a blind man sitting uh, r- right on a park bench. And he feels sorry for the guy. He sits down next to the blind man, and he says, uh, "He says here," gives him the matzah, and they're sitting in silence. The rabbi and the blind man are both chewing on their pieces of matzah, respectively. And finally, the blind man turns to the rabbi and says to him, "Say, who wrote this?" Hmm. That's but how I tell the see, joke. Yeah, maybe it just <laughs> get it. Like you know, it feels like Chris Braille. liked it. I just you know, have you, had, you guys okay. feel better? That's cool. <laughs> Wait, uh, have either of you ever seen a matzah in, or held one in your hand? A piece of matzah? No, they nope. haven't. Nope. So the joke fails. Wow. It does. And that, that is because I was one on, I don't even know what that is. I, is. I'm not sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, the joke should go something like this. So the rabbi, feeling sorry for the blind man, sits down next to him and hands him a piece of matzah. And the, and the blind, blind guy man. runs his hand over yes. the matzah grooves before he bites into it and says, Say, who wrote this? He would never bite into it. You see, that's the whole point. He doesn't know. See, matzah is so unappetizing. That, that's part How of the would joke. the blind man know that it's unappetizing? You can't even see it. No, no, no. You're all not getting it. He thinks it's paper. Oh, I mm. get it. 
the moss has said, all these little it has all these little see, ridges and that in joke it. really like it depends on you knowing what a matzah is. Of course it does. Yeah. And Jewish folks, unfortunately, don't have the pleasure of knowing what a matzah is. Really? And you're not missing anything? No offense to you. Yes, you are. It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's Throw some Sounds delicious. Matzah. Oh, delicious. You're no, kidding? No, no, no. Eggs like... and matzah. I had some all day. I was it, eating it all no. day. Oh, oh, see, man. I'm like jealous. Well, no, no, no. It has no taste, and it looks like a piece of cardboard, and in fact, tastes just like cardboard. It tastes like cardboard... Um, if it were flaky a little bit, and it's un, it's it's tasteless, um, chewy, nothing. So you sold, anyway. you sold me. <sighs> I'm gonna have to do. Okay, I will keep looking for a better joke. There's got to be. I bet. I bet. No, Kevin, now now understanding the joke, it is funny. It could, you know, yeah, I bet Kevin. It is pretty funny. It is yeah. pretty funny. Yeah. Because you know, I got jokes thing, you know. too. You know, they're just not the ones I don't think I should probably say. No, know? they're not. They're not. No, and, no. And Chris has gotten us our guest for next week, and yeah. I'm very excited about this. Now, uh, Chris ha- n- knows someone uh, who actually owns, I believe, what Chris he owns a. Um, he owns, yep, he owns the Canna King here at the dispensary up here, and and I've been friends with him for a while. And wait, we and, have Bill uh, Puckett coming up. Some oh, this is when we have Bill Puckett. Never, not not that I know of at all. Yes, we do. I better check. Okay. Oh, no, we have. Okay, so, and your friend's name, let me find it here. I wrote it down, and now I've lost mm-hmm. it. Your friend's name is? Mr. Chris? Matza? Dennis Rogers. Want I say it again? Dennis Rogers. Dennis Rogers, okay. Yep. Dennis. Okay, now here's, and Dennis, I believe, is also considering running for. Uh, Town commissioner, yep. That's what he's doing. He's got Rogers. his. So and he, and the reason yeah you know, the reason um we all came up with this idea is because we have been wanting to do a pot show again our most uh famous pot guest t- to date before before next week what was um Ricky Simpson that was a cool oh, yes. concept yeah that's and, an awesome show yeah yep. yeah so and and so Bill and I uh were walking around New Hope on Saturday and now there are two Two vape stores, vaporizer stores in New Hope, and it's all for that stuff that Seth um, sells. Um, Seth and Alan, Nancy, Alan. Oh no, no, I think they're saying Seth now. I really do. I think they say Seth a lot on the show. Oh, he still asks me to call him Alan. Okay, so Alan. Okay, Alan. Well, it's too late Um, now. You already called him Seth like four times. But I was okay. So pretend I was. I'm making it up. (laughs) <laughs> the other guy. We all know him as the other guy. There you go. Yeah. Tres leche. For because besides, he's always asking for um, help. He wants to employ people. So they <laughs> he's always, know, he's know always he's asking for people to buy his products. This is what he's doing. <laughs> right. And he sells something like what is in these vaporizing stores. I, right. I, okay, now, what they are seems to be, because I asked the fellow, you cannot say the word pot in the store. No, 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 you know, Nancy, no, no, you can't. A big no, no, no. It's tobacco products. It's tobacco no, products. Wink, wink. They're allowed to call pot loose leaf. Loose leaf is how they refer to pot. Here, even, if, if, if you flowers. mention if you mention pot at a head shop, 
you're going to get some loose lips because they're going to punch you in the face and throw you out. So yeah, yeah. they're like they they aren't yeah. like that here they anymore. Like here, but no. they used no. to be like that here for for always. You know, up yep. until just got legal, it's always and even when it was like, oh, don't don't talk about you know say that and give you all just what you said. This the scowl eye of. I said, you don't want to get the evil eye out of head chop, Nancy. It's not cool. Yeah. Right. And so I said, well, can you say marijuana? And he said, no, no, no. And then Bill said, can you say the C word? And it's like, say what? And they can say the C word, right? They can say cannabis, I believe. They, they can never say that they're selling products that is for that. Yeah. yeah. Get it? Yeah. So that, them, yeah, they sell magazines and posters and, right, and, and right. utensils and all the things, sure. But yet they can't. It's it's crazy. Yeah, I know. yeah. They could, they got everything has got to be labeled as is tobacco related products. This is for your tobacco usage. Okay. Well, be, before and wink, we're wink. kind of running. We're getting low on time. We have one have, minute left. No, no, no. We have a few minutes because I I do have a little bit of Prince um, Prince stuff. Okay. Oh, yeah. Prince Rest stuff. in peace. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I do have a little something because, uh, you know, in preparation, um, I was looking at the video, and I can again put that in our chat, where he was talking about Dick Gregory and chemtrails, and this will lead right into tonight's guest, um, in which, um, y- if you watch the video, uh, you'll see Prince is being interviewed by Tavis Smiley. Tavis Smiley. Yeah. And uh, Dick Gregory is amazing. He believes the chemtrails um are poisoning black um black um parts of the world people people. more than most and uh he goes on to say that manganese will make you kill your mama manganese and they have manganese yeah and supposedly it's but but prince believed this 100 percent, and it's in his song called dreaming i believe there's references to um uh, chemtrails. Yeah, you know, it's funny because Prince and both Prince and Michael Jackson started doing that later on in their music where they were talking more about, like, environmental issues yeah, and stuff that yeah. we were doing. And even Michael went on, on record on interviews talking about the Illuminati and how Sony was controlling things with music. Yeah. Like, they both, they both went on, like, this deep end with the conspiracy stuff, and then they died. I know. Red flags. I, red flags. I know. I'm very curious on to find out about the record uh, collection, the private records collection that that mm. Prince had made in a bolt that he had old albums. He has 2,500 unreleased. Yeah, songs. that's so right. What's, what's the, here's, what's a, here's a crazy. Here's a crazy. Here's albums. a crazy. That here's a crazy part. 2,500 unreleased songs over almost a thousand music videos. Mm-hmm. Yep. Right, and 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 that's and crazy. And here's the weird part about it. He left no will. None. Neither did Picasso. Uh, maybe for the mm-hmm. same reason. Creative people sometimes... Well, do, does Prince have children? He had a child who, was, who passed, passed away, away a couple of, yeah, uh-huh. right shortly after, after birth. Mm-hmm. He was married twice. Uh, he, his mom, I believe, has passed away. His pops has passed, passed he away. He has no family. He has a brother and a sister. A sister. That's it. Right. Yeah, and, and uh, they they're probably going to be the ones that inherit his estate. So. Yeah, how tall was he officially? Five five four, five three, no, five, five two, five three. Five yeah, two. Something like that. Five He's two. a short little guy. Short, Played short all little instruments, self-taught. Yep. And um, for a lot of people who did not know, this guy, this little guy, could play the guitar like as good as anybody. Yeah, and um, he rocked that 2011 um, Super Bowl highlight. Uh, I was about to say that. Like, I was about to like, say like Chris. none other. Yep, I'll tell you, I was about to say that was probably the best halftime show in the Super Bowl ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Most people will agree. 
because he's the real thing. The rain well, not only, coming not only down, that, and he yeah. kept going. Yeah. He's saying, oh, here's how, how crazy this is. The guy is famous for singing a song called Purple Rain. Right. In the Super Bowl, it has it never had rained on the halftime show, ever, hmm. before that. Wow. Here's Prince and his cover. He's going to like finish the show off with Purple Rain. Beautiful And guitar. it starts pouring. Hmm. And this man who's on high heels, and he, he wore high heels, guys. I and know. he has all his dancers wearing high heels. And they're on stage dancing around, running around like nothing. And they don't slip and fall. Like It was a flawless performance yeah. in the rain. And yeah. then, of course, when he starts singing Purple Rain, like the hairs on the back of your head just stand up. Oh, you and can imagine. Yeah. It's, it's amazing. It's amazing. People are wild. I'm going to have to watch the whole. Oh, it's so amazing. Yeah, I, I've just seen bits and pieces. Uh, you know, because we were, we were parents, and that was during our active parenting years. And my daughter just loved Prince, just loved him. And it's been, a, it's been rough for her because she also loved Bowie. Um, but her number one favorite musician is Todd Rundgren, and I hope he's healthy. He's my age. I hope he's healthy and stays healthy. Really? Uh, Todd yeah. Rundgren? Todd that's, Rundgren. That's what I said she, well, when she told me that. That's what I said. I, I mean, if you would have said someone like Donny Osmond or maybe Davy Jones from the Monkees, I don't understand that. But really, Todd, no, Todd Rundgren is very. If Rundgren? you look, if, if you look into his career and his music, you'll he see had a career. Like, yeah, you're going to make hits did he have? Three. It's not. It's That's not a matter not of hits. Vanilla Ice had more hits than that. We don't consider his thing a he career. But but uh, he has a very loyal following, and he's very good to his fans. And he's yeah, very all twelve of them. Of course, oh, he's going to be loyal. Uh, he's. <laughs> I guarantee you, people listening who know Todd Rundgren really do uh, respect and admire his body of work. Just telling you, just telling you, he's. But anyway, um, mind blown here, Nancy. Mind blown. If you if you were any more popular, he'd have been a Ramon. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, sorry, uh, sorry. I have my little Prince thing, but the Dick Gregory thing is kind of shocking. Um, you know, when I when you press on that Prince link, you then can find the Dick Gregory not too far behind it. And no, the Dick Gregory is embedded in that link. And I just they, sent the link you know, to to the 2007 yeah, Super Bowl halftime show there for you. Yeah, so our little PSN chat folks, they're getting the goodies. They're getting oh, yeah. the goodies. Let me put off and uh, make sure I put that beautiful or, orange orb sighting um, in there too. Because it's good, it's good. Where did I? I already got that one in there. The Peter Davenport one. Yeah. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Got it in there. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. And this is the bottom of the hour now. So what we're going to do is we're going to take our break, and we will come back with our guest Peter Davenport from the National UFO Reporting Center here on Future Theater. So everybody, don't change your channel. Don't leave. Stay with us. We're back after these messages with our guest, Peter Davenport, on Future Theater on PSN Radio. Team 
of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions, providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology, preventative maintenance and networking support, hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Four thousand seven hundred and thirty-four UFO sightings in two thousand seven. by aliens or unknown species reported by American and British citizens and hundreds more unreported in 2007. Suppressed information about collisions with passenger aircraft and UFOs that has been kept from the public knowledge for years and only one trusted source on information from some of the top UFO researchers in the world. Exclusive information that cannot be found anywhere else on the planet. Trusted, connected, accurate. The UFOstore.com Expand your personal library with fast shipping and instant downloadable information from the largest selection of UFO products on the internet by going to theufostore.com or call on the 24-hour, 7-day-a-week order line at 541-523-2630. The truth is out there, and theufostore.com has it. Mental disorders are common in the United States and internationally. An estimate 26.2% of Americans ages 18 and older suffer from some sort of mental illness. Now, this figure translates to 57.7 million people who suffer from some sort of mental breakdown. If you find yourself laying in bed hearing voices while you're trying to sleep, well, it might not be that demonic being from another dimension trying to kill you where you sleep. It might just be your mental illness starting to kick in. So if you're out of meds for the night, then I have just the thing. Come listen to my show, The Jackal's Head. You can check out our Listen Live page only on www.psn-radio.com. See you there. This ad has been paid for by The Jackal's Head and the War on Terror. War. It's fantastic. Up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's SupermanHomePage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. SupermanHomePage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. SupermanHomePage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. 
And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. And we're back on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. And we're back with our guest, Peter Davenport, from the National UFO Reporting Center. Thank you for joining us, Peter. Uh, I'm looking forward to this. This is wonderful. Oh, boy. I, I'm delighted. I'm, I can feel the adrenaline over this show. That usually doesn't happen to me. I've done a lot of radio over the last 22 years. Or I so. know you have. Sure. But this is exciting to be with Bill and Nancy uh, Bill and Nancy Burns, and I guess Chris Brown is with us still. Yeah, Chris Brown is on the line. Yeah, I'm here. Right. So, 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 okay, so let's just start off. Chris, why don't you start off and just talk about your sighting with Peter, then we'll get into some of the other matters. I want to talk about, I'm I'm fascinated myself about um, Peter's writing. Peter, you're writing about passive radar, because I've got a million questions. But Chris, why don't you start us off? Sure. Yeah. Um, hi, Peter. I'm Chris Brown, by the way. I'm, I'm originally from Sublimity, um, Oregon. I, in 2011, in August 18th and the 27th, um, I had had, um, on the first, uh, on the 18th, I had had an encounter with a disc in the field, uh, in my house, a uh, huge disc, uh, about the size of a mile, I guess. And then the second encounter I had on the 27th was with an orb six feet from my son and I. And when we could see perfectly inside the orb, and he was nine and a half at the time. Now, you right, might remember who I am, Peter. I'm a guy who had this thing hit me like a, like a, just out of nowhere. And it was very stressful. It was something I had a hard time talking about without just falling apart. And, and, um, the MUFON investigators here in Oregon told me I needed to get a hold of you to get my report out and all that. So I called you and I, and you, uh, had your recorder going and I left this blubbering message of me crying because it was so stressful <laughs> for me. And I don't remember that, but you're not. He's gotten a lot better since then though, Peter. I have. Yeah. Been a <laughs> lot better. I, I probably have too, but <laughs> you're not the first person to be emotionally upset. That makes me feel good. Being in proximity to a UFO or even just seeing one. Yeah, it really was stressful for me, and and so that's where I'm at. And so right now, Peter, to make it to, to sum this all up quick, I'm going to be heading to the UFO Festival here in McMinnville next month and try to oh, go wonderful. in there. And I will be speaking at the at the MUFON desk. I have worked hard and hard to try to get there to be a speaker at the festival, but well, the gentleman and I, he hasn't really taken me in as much. I, he's so I don't know. I'm there to face him one on one, Peter. That's what yeah. I got to do. So anyway. <laughs> well, well, yeah. I look forward to uh, meeting you. Uh, if we haven't met before, maybe we have. Have you ever been to the uh, McMinimans Festival? I before? did show up one year. It was a few years back when Nick Pope was there, but I just showed up and just seen how everything kind of was was running, and it was I didn't stay, and and I could have yeah. went in and did that, but I didn't, and so yeah, yeah. Uh, but well, this year's going to be different. We won't. Re- well, you may recognize me. I have no means of recognizing you unless i get a picture so be sure yeah. to uh find me in the crowd and say hi i'd love to sit will, and talk for sure to for sure and i i will have every intention and that is my thing is to seek you out and the clyde lewis out another person that i've been uh, trying to get in touch with and and uh 
He's a local guy. And then uh, James Clarkson, who we had here on uh, on Future Theater a couple, what, two months back maybe now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, two months. And, uh, yeah. And so, um, yeah, that's what I got going. But, uh, well, there I am, Peter. So thank you. And thank you, Bill, yeah. for giving me that time. Nice mm-hmm. to meet you over the air. Mm-hmm. Nice to meet so. you, too. Thank you so, for being here. So, uh, so, Peter, we talked about a few things. I mean, one thing – so let's just get this thing out there because it's current. And that is this business with Hillary Clinton and uh, this New Hampshire reporter and John Podesta and the mystery of Bill Clinton's mysterious – well, the, the, the mystery of his mysterious uh, injury – on the night of the Hellbop Comet, which was also the night of the Phoenix Lights. And what yeah. night is this? So we can look at That would up. be March, what was it, six, uh, 17th, 16th or 17th? 13th. 19, 13th. 13th March 13th, 1997. Yeah, it was a Thursday night. I remember the night well, even though it's been over 19 years ago now. Mm-hmm. Seems like yesterday. I remember that first call I took from an ex-police officer who was the first one to call the hotline right after he saw an object pass to the west of his home. I could tell from his voice that something very unusual, like Chris Brown's reaction to his sightings. This guy, he was matter-of-fact, but you could tell that he was emotionally involved in his sighting. That was the first of many, many calls that I fielded that night. And... The, in my opinion, one of the more interesting facets to the Phoenix Lights event, again, March 13, 1997, is the fact that I believe that the knee injury that Bill Clinton allegedly sustained, he was down in Florida at the home of Greg Norman, the professional golfer right. from Australia. Right. Bill Clinton had flown from Washington, D.C. down to some point in Florida, Miami or Orlando, I don't know which, to spend the day golfing with Greg Norman, and he overnighted at Greg Norman's home that night. And that is the night that he allegedly collapsed. The uh, ligaments or the tendons in his knee gave way. But the interesting part of it is that that alleged injury, and I have to say alleged because the only story we have is from the government, so obviously you can't believe it. And did you see him limping the next day? No, he was in a hospital bed the next mm-hmm. day. And if uh, for confirmation of this, if people have access to the New York Times archives, they can just go to the Saturday issue, March 15th, uh, again, 1997, and it shows a photograph of President Clinton lying in a hospital bed with Mrs. Clinton sitting beside his bed. The question I ask, because we have we have fairly substantial reports that the U.S. military forces, in response to the Phoenix Lights event, were raised directly from DEFCON 5, the lowest state of military preparedness, skipping DEFCON 4, going to Defense Condition 3, as a result of an intercept of one of the objects over Camelback Mountain in Phoenix. And it was within minutes, possibly within seconds, of that intercept when the pilots reported back to Luke Air Force Base what they were dealing with that President Clinton allegedly sustained that injury. Ah, now, 
What was the pilot report? Well, there were two pilots. Uh, there were two F-15C model, Charlie models, scrambled out of Luke Air Force Base. And that's the reason they scrambled F-15s instead of F-16s is rather interesting because Luke Air Force Base in 1997 was exclusively an F-16 training base. They did not have F-15s, but predicated on a telephone call that I received uh, from a U.S. Air Force airman just about eight hours after the Phoenix Lights event had begun. He called me after he got off work at Luke Air Force Base. He alleged, this airman alleged that he had been involved in a scramble. They launched two F-15s that were part of the Air Force One and Air Force Two Protection Group. That is a little-known group, highly secretive, that is tasked with protecting the president or vice president or any dignitary in the air. They protect the president, no great surprise here, as aggressively in the air as they do on the ground, of course, because anybody with an executive jet, if the president's jet were not being protected, could arguably ram the president's airplane. Right. A suicide bomber uh, uh, basically um, could just ram the Air Force One. Absolutely. What's the difference between F-15s and F-16s? Well, an an F-15 is a much larger jet fighter. It has Mm -hmm. twin vertical stabilizers. It has two engines, and in some cases it has two seats. The new F-15E model, I think it is, has two seats in it. It's a ground-attack aircraft, but the... Uh, F-16 is a much smaller aircraft made by General Dynamics, not by Boeing, and it's a single-engine aircraft. And the reason, this is a long-winded argument, I'll just... No, go ahead, because the F-16 is really kind of an interceptor, right? Both of them are interceptors Mm -hmm. in uh, different types of missions, different mission profiles, but... I have reason to believe, based on my conversation with this U.S. Air Force airman, that the reason they scrambled two F-15s rather than F-16s is because these F-15s were flying with the Air Force One and Air Force Two Protection Group, so they were on hot pads, Mm -hmm. that is, ready to go. Uh, When you fly with that unit, you have to be prepared to take off at a minute's notice. If the president gets a sudden yearning for a Big Mac, they've got to be flying ready to protect him, I presume within hours, certainly, and maybe even within minutes. So they... Um, the Bubba loves they, his Big Macs, by the way. <laughs> yeah. The reason they scrambled the F-15s is, one, they were fueled and ready to go and on hot pads, ready to scramble within seconds or minutes. Number two, presumably they are armed. And number three, they had a type of device slung under their starboard wings called a Lantern 2 imaging device that allows Uh them to reach out optically. Some people claim as far as 500 miles and identify an aircraft. So those F-15s were scrambled. They launched to the southwest out of Luke Air Force Base, they hooked around to the right and 
bent, turned around to the north, and came in behind one of these uh, huge triangular craft. And when I say huge, that's sort of a meaningless term. I have reason to believe that the object that the lead pilot intercepted over Camelback Mountain was in the order of 7.4 terrestrial statute miles in oh. width from wingtip to wingtip. Now what now what time uh there were multiple sightings which sighting was this? Well there were at least five objects bill. We think that coursed over or through Phoenix airspace that night plus a huge disc was allegedly seen streaking from east to west over Phoenix. This is one of the five triangular objects and at the uh, UFO festival in two or three weeks, I will be showing the actual drawing we received from Sue Watson, who is one of the witnesses very close to Camelback Mountain. She lives close to the base of that mountain, and she and two daughters and two of her sons lay down on their lawn and admired this huge craft that was hovering above their home for as much as five minutes or so. Now, could they see? Could they see the stars through that object? They uh, could it, not. They could not. That's the interesting thing: is that craft blocked out most of the stars, and the stars between the two wings were visible, but they were somewhat smeared. The they were like wavy, right? Exactly, but, like but, satin. And it was was between the stars, because that's exactly what Fife Symington said he saw. Yeah. Yeah, and it was yeah. perfectly silent, correct? Yeah, silent and hovering motionless for about five minutes. At just about the time that that F-15 was coming at that triangular or chevron-shaped craft hovering over Camelback Mountain, uh, it suddenly accelerated like a marble being shot out of a slingshot and shot the six or eight miles down to Sky Harbor Airport where it hovered over the airport and was even seen by air traffic controllers who were interviewed by the news uh, that night or the night after. It was a fantastic event and the national press succeeded in keeping it covered and not publicizing it at all from March 13th to the 20th of June, which is when the story, quote, quote, broke in USA Today. It's a now, right, but you knew about it from almost the day it happened, right? I heard about it from almost the minute it was happening. Wow. It was uh, one of the most memorable nights I've spent on the hotline, taking calls from people who, it was clear that many of them were badly shaken by the the object that had just gone over their heads, mm -hmm. it was quite a wild, quite a wild event. Now, right. Fife Symington yeah. said that he called Luke Air Force Base, and the commandant of Luke Air Force Base said that he had no planes in the air that night, which is yeah. fascinating oh, well. because that was an out out and out falsehood. Absolutely, that was an out and out falsehood, and that leads me to go back to that airman that I alluded to earlier, Bill. Uh, he called at 0320 hours Friday morning, the 14th of March. So this is about 
almost to the minute, this is eight hours after the first call came in over the hotline. Actually, the event first began or was first reported from Henderson, Nevada. Right, and they came southeast. They came southeast and streamed in across Phoenix and across Prescott, Prescott Valley. Mm -hmm. In fact, the reason that Luke Air Force Base scrambled those two F-15s is because of a radio call that a U.S. Navy admiral retired had placed as he was descend He had flown from Denver to Prescott Valley Airport, and as he was descending into Prescott Valley, the whole valley just disappeared from his view. All the lights of Prescott were no longer visible from his aircraft, even though it was a clear night. Wow. He knew that something immense was ahead of his aircraft, and this retired admiral got on the got on the radio and he started calling everybody he could to alert them to some very unusual event. He had no idea what it was, and I presume it was predicated upon his description of what he was seeing that Luke scrambled those two F-15s. Later, they did scramble F-16s as well, but to the best of my knowledge, the first aircraft out of Luke were the F-15s. And, and whatever happens to the film uh, from the uh, from those cameras that the F-15s are carrying? Oh, good <laughs> question, Nancy. And I can tell you exactly, based on what this airman told me, the two Whoa! F-15s, after their intercept of that object... Uh, returned to Luke Air Force Base, which was only about 20 miles away, 20 miles to the west of where the intercept had taken place. So it didn't take them long to get back home. In mm. fact, I'm sure that those two pilots were anxious to get back on the ground after what they had seen. The lead pilot, a lieutenant colonel in the Maryland Air National Guard, we know his name, people have talked to him, he refuses to talk about this incident, unfortunately. Mm. But when they returned to Luke Air Force Base, they landed hot. They went right back to their tie-downs, to the hot pads that they had launched from. And the lead pilot, for some reason that we are not uh, clear on at all, was unable to raise his canopy and get out of his cockpit under his own steam. So his ground crew raised the F-15's canopy from the outside and they un undid his uh, chest straps, lap straps, knee straps, and had to physically lift that lieutenant colonel out of that aircraft. Mm. And as he was being lifted out, he was telling them what he had just seen mm. and gave them a great deal of detail about what had uh, occurred. Once they got them got the pilot out of the aircraft, the other pilot was apparently not as severely affected were affected at all. But once they got the lead pilot out of his cockpit, the U.S. Air Force airman who had helped in that process quickly ran around to the Lantern II pod underneath the starboard wing, opened the access doors, and pulled all the videotapes. There's at least one, and I suspect more than one. And he also pulled the videotapes out of the canopy uh, or the cockpit uh, camcorders and raced them to a waiting T-39, an executive jet used by the military, which immediately taxied out hot 
and uh, took off to points unknown. So what, what does it mean? A, what does it mean? Taxi out hot. Well, it's when when the F-15s returned to base. That T-39 was already waiting mm-hmm. with its engines turning. I see. In other so words, they knew that they were going to have some pretty good video of this event and of this object, and it had a destination that it had to get to very, very quickly. And were the pilots... The airmen... airmen, One, excuse me for interrupting, Nancy. The last point I'll make on this is the airman pulled at least three videotapes, and he ran them at a dead run for the waiting T-39, the door of which was open. He threw the tapes in, probably from both aircraft, both F-15s. They slammed the door shut. The T-39 uh, uh, started taxiing out to the main runway, accompanied by the second F-15 that mm-hmm. took off with it. So they weren't fooling around. They actually had this T-39 protected. Yeah, they they sent the T-39 out with that F-15. What the destination was, I don't know, but within recent days, within the last three days, I think it was on Friday, I talked with a gentleman who has access to some very senior military personnel, and he's talked to them at my request about this incident. Mm. And he alleges to me, he's a very, very successful, very responsible attorney in the South, southern United States. He asserts to me that they assured him that they knew fully well about the Phoenix Lights and that a DEFCON 3 military preparedness was declared that night. And that's probably why the president was being moved. I'm sure if DEFCON 3 is declared, somebody has the presence of mind to pick up the telephone, call the commander-in-chief, and let him know what's going oh, on. Oh, absolutely. First of all, uh, first well, of all, the defense secretary is going to have to let the commander-in-chief know. But here's the thing. When um, Hillary Clinton says that she's going to get to the bottom of all this or whatever phrase she used, the fact is there she was in the hospital with her yes. husband, the president, yes. just just hours after this event where the president literally goes incommunicado just as this incident is breaking. Yep. And that's not the end of Bill Clinton's involvement in this whole thing because no. – I agree, uh, be, uh, because what, what happens is um, Francis Barwood doesn't raise a complaint about UFOs. Francis Barwood actually goes into the Phoenix City Council meeting because she was a council member. And she simply raises, she says the question, if there was an object that people were reporting in um, restricted airspace over Sky Harbor Airport and Luke Air Force Base, what was it? And immediately in the newspaper, they're calling her Beam Me Up Barwood. And even the mayor of Phoenix turns against her. People are ostracizing her. And she finds herself really wearing a dunce cap over the whole thing. And she never even used the word UFO. Yep, they've got pretty good capability for discrediting a person in the eyes of the public, no matter how good the data he or she might have. Mm. It's really unfair, and it's something you've got to be prepared for when you, as you well know, yeah. when you uh, 
investigate UFO events. Sure. So Frances Barwood says, this was her quote, that Fife Symington, the governor of Arizona, was in hot water. I mean, he had been uh, indicted. He was going to be tried for some kind of a corruption case. I forget what it was. But it was some political corruption. And he he had a meeting in a morning after this in judges' chambers. And they were discussing the case, possibly potential sentences. That afternoon of that meeting, according to Barwood, that afternoon, that's when he has the press – that morning – he leaves court and he says, I'm going to have a press conference. I'm going to get to the bottom of this whole thing. So I'm going to have a press conference. I'm going to reveal the truth at that press conference. Everybody gets excited. And then in walks his chief of staff in an alien costume. People are like falling on the floor laughing. The witnesses, however, aren't laughing. They're furious. And that's how Fife Symington says he is going to get to the bottom of the pro- of the yeah. um of the question of what it was over Phoenix. And that's how it sat. And then um, the court reverses Fife Symington's conviction, and Bill Clinton gives him a complete Mark Rich-level pardon. Years later, Fife Symington actually admits he saw that 830 object, that floating triangle. Um, I have a before we leave that, I, I just have two quick questions. Um, number one, who gave you the report about, uh, you know, the, the pilots taking the tapes out and getting them into the next, um, you know, handing them off? And so that sounds like it's an eyewitness who saw all this happening. Yeah, that was yeah. told to me by the U.S. Air Force Airman who actually removed the tapes. He told me, wow. gave me a detailed description of what he did. After he got the pilot oh, out of the okay. cockpit, standing on his feet, the airman then raced down the stairs, went around the aircraft to the starboard side, pulled out the tapes, and raced them to uh, the waiting T-39. Well, and, so and that's then, from the actual person. Okay, that's that's fabulous. And then second, did any is there any report on the debriefing of these two pilots? No. What, what was the injury or whatever? We don't know why that pilot was incapacitated, whether it was physiological or whether it was psychological. The pilot reported to the ground crew as he was being lifted out of his cockpit that as he intercepted that chevron-shaped, triangular-shaped craft over Indian School Road and 7th Avenue, he could see its left-hand wingtip out the left-hand side of his canopy at mm. the 9 o'clock position, there were three lights in his windscreen directly ahead of him, and he could see the right-hand wingtip of the Chevron at his 3 o'clock position. In other words, mm. the craft he was intercepting was so large that it subtended an arc of 180 degrees as viewed from that mm-hmm. Air Force wow. pilot's seat in his cockpit. And I'm sure and what happened was, as this Air Force... F-15 was closing on that object, suddenly all of the lights on the object diminished to zero. They just disappeared from the pilot's sight. At the same time, 
the radar screen on his instrument panel went to white noise. And mm-hmm. I presume at that point he just broke off the intercept, pulled up, and headed back to Luke Air Force Base. Mm-hmm. That's what I would do. But yet he still had control of his aircraft. Okay. And um, did he say anything about his fire control mechanism? Well, if his radar went out, then he would have lost his targeting radar too. I suspect you're correct, Bill, but I can't confirm that. Uh, this airman didn't give me any information on that subject. Well, in the case of your protocol, let's just say, when someone calls you and <clears throat> leaves a message and you call back, do you ever establish a communication in which you're, you, you might have more questions and you can call the person back a second or third time? Absolutely. And what I did with this airman, that's a good question. The first question I always ask is, is the information I'm receiving accurate or not? Mm -hmm. That's the first question. And based on my conversation, it's, a, I think, a 42-minute long conversation, which I tape recorded. Mm -hmm. Um, During that conversation, uh, it occurred to me that this might be disinformation. Bear in mind that... At uh, eight hours after the Phoenix Lights event had begun, I I had no idea what had taken place. Nobody else did either. All the ufologists were calling each other back and forth, comparing notes, but we had no orchestrated or organized picture of what had taken place. We didn't know whether it was one or more objects, uh, what they were, how big they were, what they were doing there. We just had a whole pile of notes from telephone calls. The telephone was ringing, the hotline was ringing probably every 30 to 60 seconds all night long. Wow. Wow. People who demanded to know what these things were that had gone over their heads. But Well, yeah, and, and, and at this point you own the silo, I take it, and did you get, well, maybe you didn't, but boy, I would have, I'd be no, thinking about it. <laughs> How many calls do you get a day, Peter, on your on your um, site usually? Uh, usually 20 to 30. I see, okay. On All average. Right. Uh, recent day I took uh, about 50, but 80 or 90% of them are hoax calls, Bill. It's yeah, tragedy. sure, because that's yeah. uh, that's that's what we used to get at UFO magazine when the when the uh, when the uh, first F sixteen pilot, the lieutenant colonel, what, was he in communication with Luke Air Force Base during the whole during the whole mission? I presume so, but I have to allow for the possibility that there was radio interference. Well, that's that was my next question. Yeah, uh, but I suspect once that object shot down and stopped and hovered over Sky Harbor Airport, the F-15 might have been outside the sort of the arena of influence of that that craft. In fact, uh, you if you come to uh, the UFO Festival in McMinnville, you will meet Mrs. Susan Watson. Mm-hmm. Again, I alluded to her earlier. Two of her sons lay down on the grass and just stared up at this magnificent machine that was hovering above them. They could see individual features on the ventral surface of that object. But just about the time the F-15s were approaching it from the north, it suddenly accelerated 
and Sue says it was almost faster than her eye could follow it. It fired a laser-like beam that struck the earth, and it jumped the six or eight miles down to uh, Sky Harbor Airport in just the bat of an eye. It covered six or eight miles in probably less than a second. It was a fantastic event. And I'm flabbergasted. What interests me as much as the event itself is the fact that apparently the government and in orchestration with the press could keep it quiet. Uh, It occurred again on the 13th of March. It was not until Wednesday the 18th of June that the story, quote, quote, broke in USA Today. And then that's when Fife Symington, I believe it was a little bit later, Bill, that the governor, Governor Fife Symington, held that press conference right? when he had his uh, chief of staff or one of his subordinates. It was the chief of, no, it was the chief of staff. And was the it? thing was, yeah, and, and the thing was that the, the hubbub surrounding that sighting, a couple of things happened that they hadn't planned for. Let's just say that they have protocols in place to cover this up. One was that the national media did jump on this. This was covered by the national media. Uh, In some cases, it was covered in a very derogatory way, but in other cases, it was covered in this kind of, oh, wow, what's going on here? But it was national media, CNN, was covering this, which was, I suspect, why Fife Symington was told, this is what you have to do to put a lid on this and do what the CIA has been doing since the 1950s, that is marginalize this thing as a joke, as a science fiction joke, so people will laugh at it instead of taking it seriously. I mean, that's been the protocol. But when... Go ahead. I was just going to comment. There are only two people that I can imagine who would have had the sway, not the authority so much as the sway, over a state governor to get him to keep quiet for 10 years. And the first one, of course, would be the President of the United States. The second one might be the commander of Luke Air Force Base himself. Right, who told... Uh, they actually, they were so shocked by what had gone on that they chained the gates closed, the front gates of Luke Air Force Base, after the intercept had begun. They thought, I suspect they were well. considering girding for war over yeah, that. Well, possibly, so and the thing was, Fife Symington made it absolutely clear to me when he said, I am the commander-in-chief of the Air National Guard at Luke Air Force Base. Oh, These people right. work for me. So he said, so when I called the commander of Luke Air Force Base, I didn't call him as just another citizen on a frantic 911 call. I called this guy. I'm his boss. He reports to me. And he told me there were no planes in the air. So I, that's another fascinating thing, too. So obviously, if Bill Clinton is sitting in a hospital in Florida, he's been incommunicado, this thing really was a flap. And then he gives Fife Symington a pardon after what he did. Yep. It's, it, it just seems to me that even if Hillary Clinton didn't know the details she knew that this was an anomalous event, anomalous enough 
that the president of the United States is incommunicado and that only hap at least to my knowledge, the only time something similar happened was with Lyndon J- President Lyndon Johnson in 1965 after Kecksburg. Mm-hmm. He was incommunicado. Yeah, I didn't know that. That's yeah. a very interesting fact. Well, I suspect that Hillary Clinton's offer to get to the bottom of the UFO phenomenon is just marketing during her campaign because at one time when she was Secretary of State she was fifth in line in succession to the office of the president. And she would have and, been read in at some point. Um, absolutely. She would well, have every, been, everyone has seen the photo of uh, Hillary walking with Lawrence Rockefeller and cradling um, what book? It was um, trying to think. I don't know the name of the book, but she's got it in the. It's in photographs. Right. I mean, she's she's read books. Paul Davids flat out said that he he personally made it possible for her to receive another kind of UFO book, and um, John Podesta was uh, partners with Leslie Kane in filing suit against NASA. Not that John Podesta, it's funny because people kind of equated John Podesta with UFO disclosure and Podesta made it clear it wasn't really UFOs that he was more concerned about than the nature of transparency itself in government goings on. I mean, obviously classified is classified, national security is national security, but he's saying that or whenever possible, the government should be transparent. And so that's why he was part of that lawsuit against NASA. And, of course, NASA revealed nothing about Kecksburg. They just said they had no records, and they disclosed a bunch of information that didn't help anything. But it was John Podesta who was involved in that. So people were very curious when John Podesta landed in Hillary Clinton's campaign because he was an advocate for getting the UFO files out. Yeah. Isn't it interesting how all the candidates pledge that they're going to reveal the truth about the UFO phenomenon, and yet when they achieve office, uh, they seem to forget their pledge. Okay, so here's a trivia. Okay, so here's a question for you. See, I don't know the answer to this. I'd love to know the answer, and it's this. On the campaign trail in 1976, Jimmy Carter, and you know the story about Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush and one that Danny Sheehan tells. But um, on the campaign trail, Jimmy Carter is asked, just like Hillary Clinton, are you ever going to tell the truth about UFOs? And Jimmy Carter says, yes, I will tell the American people the truth about UFOs. Jimmy Carter having filed his own UFO report. He had a UFO sign. Now, as the story goes, and I don't know if this is fact or fiction, as the story goes, someone with access to the Oval Office walks in on Jimmy Carter in the Oval Office and says, you will not tell the truth about UFOs. If you do tell anything about UFOs, it'll be the end of your presidency and your family is in danger. And Jimmy Carter at that point closed it down. Question, who was it? that delivered that warning to Jimmy Carter. Yeah. It leads us into a whole new domain that's even in- more interesting, in my opinion, than what we've been discussing about the Phoenix Lights. Right. And that is, do we know who is running 
or influencing the U.S. government? Mm -hmm. And could there be an alien force that is somehow, some way, either beknownst to the people who are being affected or possibly not even known by them, could it be influencing the direction this planet is taking? Of course and it when could I be. Look, when I look at what the government, U.S. government, is now doing to the American people as opposed to for the American people, I start getting very nervous. Well, are you talking about things like fracking and hurting, you know, intentionally hurting the environment, stuff like that? Well, among the others? environment possibly, Nancy. But what I'm talking about is uh, cessation of rights or certainly curtailing of rights. Constitution makes it very clear. When the Constitution is interpreted, usually by the Supreme Court, it has to interpret it in order to expand the rights that are delineated in the Constitution. They must not ever limit them, constrain them. Mm -hmm. And this government is doing exactly the opposite. And when I look at for example, a government that is trying to disarm the American people, and it's doing it full time. And when I look at a government that is plunging us ever deeper into debt, which is tantamount to slavery, mm -hmm. it looks to me, if you just turn off the sound, figuratively speaking, and watch the picture, mm -hmm. you start getting very alarmed by this government. Mm -hmm. And then you would say this is something that both parties do. It's not simply the province of one or the other. I mean, this has been going on since at least recently for the past, what, 16 Both parties, years? Bill. Both, Both parties. parties. Both I was parties. just talking to, my, to a member of Congress recently about the debt problem. This is a woman who's a Republican in Congress. She's been there for a decade or more. And I pointed out to her that the Republicans, the Republican Party has had the majority in both houses for now 63 months by my count. Correct. They took over in early January of Correct. 2011. Yes, yes. And the Congressional Budget Office just announced that the projected budget deficit for this year is slated to be somewhere between 544 and 568 billion dollars. That's 60% larger than Jimmy Carter's last budget. This is the deficit this year, 60% larger than Jimmy Carter's last budget as a lame duck president. And it's almost as if somebody is attempting to bring a formerly free and prosperous people to their knees. That's what worries me. Whether it is alien-related or not, I have no way of knowing. And I would emphasize for the benefit, particularly the benefit of those listeners who need proof and evidence, as I do, that I have none. It's just instincts that are leading me to this suspicion. Mm -hmm. and, and that's I, and, one and of the many and, reasons that I think we've got to get to the bottom of the UFO phenomenon is to satisfy ourselves that it, may, it is not influencing the course our government and this planet take. Well, what if the secret is bigger than all that? I mean, one of the uh, UFOs are funny in that they turn up in places where you least expect them to turn up. I mean, like we all know about UFO sightings, but UFO stories turn up in the, just the oddest places. I mean, for me, uh, just last year when I was doing the biography of Mickey Rooney at 
totally different book because I knew him, my parents knew him, my writing partner knew him. And we were doing this biography, and lo and behold, Mickey Rooney's eighth wife was Jan Chamberlain, whose husband, who's uh, not sorry, her whose father worked for Skunk Works. He worked for Lockheed. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. And he mm-hmm. worked for the Air Force, the, uh, the Army Air Force, in 1947. Mm-hmm. And supposedly he might have been at Roswell. But he told his children, Jan and her sister, uh, when they were teenagers, that, I mean, Jan's now in her 80s, that, um, the gu- that there are UFO files. This is, his name was Red Chamberlain. Trace the guy. Um, there are UFO files. They'll never be released because were they to be released, he told his daughters that the world's religions and its institutions would collapse. Now, that's from this person. Now, the only little snippet, and I mean snippet, it is a piece of thread of corroboration is that he and his daughters were at dinner in some restaurant, wherever they were living, probably in California. And um, Kelly Johnson walked up to the table where they were eating, you know, shook Red Chamberlain's hand, patted him on the back, and and the father introduced the head of uh, uh, Lockheed to his daughters. And they exchanged these knowing glances and went on their way. Mm-hmm. So, again, it's just a little tiny little shred of corroboration uh, with respect to Red Chamberlain's credibility on the subject. But it really blew my mind when Jan talked about it. And she told this to Larry King and Don Schmidt and Tom Carey. Well, um, it's been now 19 years since the Phoenix Lights. And in the in the... Ensuing years, do you think that it turns out that that was a United States black budget thing that we're finally getting some some hints about, or some I, other countries' thing? I seriously doubt it, Nancy. Uh, the principal reason I say that is because of the flight characteristics of the object. I, I mentioned earlier in this program how that that sh- I call it a chevron shape. It looks looked like. Uh, a British sergeant's stripes on his shoulder, right. on his arm. Mm-hmm. Uh, it jumped from Camelback Mountain down to Sky Harbor Airport just in the matter of a bat of an eye. Yeah. And we don't have any hardware that would allow us to do that. And most of all, we don't have we don't have pilots or crew members yeah. that yeah. would withstand that kind of G-force. Unless. And- yeah, but wait, before, and, and before we leave that, in chat, Lou was asking, and, and others wanted to know too, if you could kind of compare and contrast that with Stevensville, which was, uh, you know, um, yeah. another good-sized sighting of triangular-shaped things. Do you think they have any connection? Uh, they may be in the sense that the craft looked the same. Stevensville, that was on a Tuesday night, the 8th of January, uh, 19, uh, 2008, I believe. Correct. We took, we took some of the early reports from people who had seen that object, and it was very similar in appearance to the Phoenix Lights craft that were reported to us. And 
there were at least two types of different crafts seen over Phoenix, and there may have been as many as five different types. But uh, they were similar uh, in the sense that the craft that went over Stevensville exhibited flight characteristics which were just almost unbelievable. The fact that it uh, stopped over Stevensville and hovered for a short period of time and then shot to the west and then a very short time later came back the opposite direction and accelerated away from the F-16s that were pursuing it like they were standing still. Right, that's and, why I brought it. Yeah, the, I remember the, X, the, the, F, the F-16s as part of the story. They, there were many of them, I think, in that particular. Yeah, they flew out of Carswell. Yeah. yeah, at least two that I remember. And it's logical that they would have pursued that object because it was in proximity to President Bush's ranch, and I think he was in residence at his ranch at the time. Mm-hmm. At Crawford, so, yeah, yeah. But it's a good observation, Nancy, in the sense that the craft were similar in appearance and similar in nature and exhibited the same or similar flight characteristics. I actually wondered the same but I have no evidence to push me in one direction or the other. Well, when uh, we're getting close to um, coming up to a break, and after the break, we're going to talk about passive radar. It's so exciting! Yeah, that's the next but, thing. Yeah, I wonder. But before that. we do, can you talk about how you started? I love the concept of how organized you are, and how <laughs> you know <laughs> folks can right now they can go to your website, and they can they can follow by date. Uh, you keep impeccable records and so you know people can find some interesting patterns you know for example california has way more sightings than any other place on earth that was interesting but how did when you started did you start with paper and pen or typewriter and yeah (laughs) this Uh, is what happened i'll i'll give you a short history of how I became the director of the National UFO Reporting Center. It was actually founded in October of 1974 by Robert J. Gribble, who was a retired Seattle fireman who was very interested in the UFO phenomenon. Um, Starting in the 40s, he had had a whole bunch of... He invited people to Seattle to lecture on the UFO phenomenon, had, uh, oh, just every name from ufology from the 40s and 50s that you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And one night I was talking to a friend of mine. We were both members of MUFON at the time. And at the close of that conversation on a Friday night, he said, by the way, Peter, did you know that Bob Gribble is considering shutting down the hotline, which he had run for almost 20 years at that point? Mm -hmm. And I thought that would be a tragedy. So my next call and I wish I, some days wish I had never made it, Mm. was to Bob Gribble on a Friday night. Mm. And I said, Bob, I understand you're you're considering shutting down the hotline. I said, if there's anything I can do to lighten your load that would allow you to keep it running, I would be happy to do so. Mm -hmm. And he said, Peter, it's yours. (laughs) (laughs) That was quick. And I wish I'd turned my back and never looked back. Uh, because it has completely re-engineered my perception of reality and has re-engineered my life in every respect you can imagine. Wow. I think that's a wonderful thing, don't it, you think? It, it is, it but sounds... then how do you cope with the 
discordancy well, well, in the reality. Let's go back to yeah. paper and pencil. So what did you inherit? You inherited a telephone number and a, a lot of file cards, perhaps? Almost no records. Bob <laughs> ended up giving them to a gal down in uh, Albuquerque. And I don't understand what motivated him to do that, but that was his prerogative, and that's the way he did it. Mm-hmm. So I got a telephone number, and that was it. And on the 25th of August, I believe it was, uh, 1994, the the calls started coming into my home telephone number. Mm-hmm. And my life has not been the same ever since. And this is what caused me. This is a good segue into the passive radar subject. Mm-hmm. I see we're at the bottom of the hour. Maybe right. I can yeah. hold it if you yeah. want to take a break. Yeah, we're going to take a quick break. So um, anybody who has to get a drink or whatever, um, a little refreshment, go ahead and do it. We are your co-host, Bill. Uh, that's me and Nancy Burns with our guest, Peter Davenport of the National UFO Reporting Center on Future Theater Live on the Dark Matter Digital Network and PSN Radio. And we We will be back in just a minute after these messages. So stay with us, folks, for more from Peter Davenport. The George Rodriguez Show. I said the George Rodriguez Show. You don't know George Rodriguez? Wasn't he the guy that filled in for Neil Rogers? Yes, that George Rodriguez. What's he like? Oh, he's a short little Cuban fellow. Kind of funny looking. Well, when's he on? 12 to 3, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday on SoFloRadio.com and SoFloRadio.net. The George Rodriguez Show is much more than adequate. Put a team of professional consultants behind your home or business computer with key information solutions. Providing solutions to your internet and computing needs while keeping you on the cutting edge of technology. Preventative maintenance and networking support. Hardware and custom built computers. Let key information solutions be your personal tech staff for your home or office with affordable hourly, monthly, or annual rates to fit anyone's budget. Call Key Information Solutions now. 954-973-3374. That's 954-973-3374. Or visit keyinformation.com. Look, up in the sky. It's a bird. It's a plane. No, it's supermanhomepage.com, the number one Superman fan site in the world. Supermanhomepage.com, covering the world of Superman from the 1930s to today. News, reviews, rumors, and reports. Supermanhomepage.com, for all your Superman comics, TV shows, movies, cartoons, radio shows, and more. Everything you ever wanted to know about the Man of Steel and more. SupermanHomePage.com Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store.
And we are back with everybody on the show tonight. Our guest, Peter Davenport from the National UFO Reporting Center, and Chris Brown and Angel Espino, the Jackal. And we are talking now something that really fascinated me Wait, about gonna, not, Peter Davenport's we're work. We're not going to do Passive Radar just Which is moment. Passive Radar. Yeah, but we're going to finish up on... Just at the moment, you know, we talked about, you know, how the um, the um, reporting started and how the organization started. But uh, how how is it maintained nowadays? Is it a huge kind of Excel thing that you've got going on? Well, we have a, a, a database software that uh, contains now about 127,000 reports. About 115,000 of those reports are posted to our website. And that is the core of the National UFO Reporting Center. It's nothing sophisticated. I was amused by your comment about how organized I am. If mm. you were to see my desk here and sit in front of me, Nancy, you might wish to retract. <laughs> <laughs> well, I also but, before yeah, there's another cool fact. You have in fact own you you own a silo, an Atlas missile decommissioned silo, um, but you're not. But are you going to be putting UFO records down there? Well, uh, I usually don't uh, talk in any great deal uh, detail as to where our records are, ah. uh, because we'd prefer not to have them uh, rifled and disturbed and so on and so forth. But my intention when I bought the missile site 10 years ago was to live in it. In fact, what I wanted was a wall that was big enough to encompass my entire library. There's one wall in the missile site which is 16 feet tall mm. and 90 feet long, and that wow. would probably do most of the books. Wow. And uh, But then, after I purchased it and started working on it and cleaning it up, which I'm still doing, by the way, mm -hmm. I discovered that missile silos can be very damp. That's what I was going to, and that's why I was using the War of the World to reference. If you were going to store all the paperwork down there, uh, of course, you know, it, it would survive a nuclear blast, but it won't survive. Yeah, the damp. Um, yep. Yeah, very, is that is that actually what's going on? observation. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's weird. But um, so what happens to the to the investment if you're not going to, say, you know, turn it into a library? I don't know. That's a good question. People always ask me, Peter, what are you going to do with your missile site? And I say, own it. Keep it. <laughs> right. And people say, well, what's the purpose of that? And I counter by saying, well, what's the purpose of collecting stamps or coins or or beer bottles? or?" Well, have it? you been through the whole entire thing? Yeah, I have. You have. And, the and site. Yeah, yeah. And how... How, in addition to um, the 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 vast sum of records that you actually have handled in terms of all these sightings, every single, I'd say ninety percent of the ones that that you're publishing are accurate, true. The person wasn't lying. Maybe ten percent creeped in. Hard um, to know. Yeah, but 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 seriously, there's. I mean, you know, if only one person had to be telling the truth, you've got something. Um, and then you're facing the remnants of what our race actually built. I don't believe, I don't think I could believe in nuclear anything until I was face-to-face -face with dials or the size of it or the fact that all this attention was, was, was poured into this construction for destruction. Yeah. And so you have to couple that reality with this 
as I said, you know, on the other side of the scale, this amazing weight of people seeing stuff saying, my God. Yeah. So, yeah, I just wanted to throw yeah. out, did, did, the, did the silo give you a creepy feeling? It did. And, yeah. 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 It's sort of a creepy, dark place, and for the first several years that I owned it, it had only very cursory lighting in it, very unsubstantial lighting. And just about three years ago or four years ago, with the help of a good friend who owns a sister site to mine, ah. there's six of them in the county where I live, ah. uh, we installed wiring and it now has lights. You can throw a switch. and uh, There are six I mean, silos in the county where you live? Yeah. There were nine that were built in the late 50s, early 60s, and all of them were commanded out of Fairchild Air Force Base, which is just on the west side of uh, Spokane, Washington. Okay. And okay. six of the nine are in my county, uh, two of the nine are in Spokane County, and one of them is south of Spokane, just inside Idaho. Mm-hmm. And they were immensely strongly built facilities. I think that's the one thing that attracted me to it. I like things that are built to last. <laughs> and this, I would say, you have something that will last. <laughs> and I own about two to three million tons of cement and reinforcing bar, and that's pretty substantial, even by my measure. So I enjoy owning it. It's sort of an interesting place to be in, and if uh, if there's any kind of catastrophe, an imminent, uh, an imminent asteroid strike being projected, I suspect I'm going to be pretty popular here about. I was going to say, that is the ultimate in doomsday well, how, prepping. How many people? Well, you know, yeah, they should have focused you on that show, that doomsday. Yeah, I was going to say, I well, mean... How, how, many, how, many, how many toilets are in the facility? How many is... What's the septic load of that? It's, it better be more than one, for sure. Yeah. Uh, it's about... 18,000 square feet underground, so in a an emergency, if we had proper toilets, we could house probably 500 to 1,000 people for a very short period of time. Interesting. Now, how many other people do you know? I know there's one other person at least, but how many other people, I'm, I'm curious because sometimes you get an idea for something, how many other people do you know that actually bought some of these missile facilities? These missile sites. I know, let's see, one, two, three, four, five. I know, uh, I know four of the other owners. Here's an interesting fact, Bill. You, you might fire up your cameras and go after this one. That's what I'm thinking. One of the sites, which is northeast of me, north of the city of Reardon, which is about a 25-mile drive from where I'm sitting, one of the sites until three or four years ago was owned by the Corps of Engineers, and its ownership was transferred to the CDC. And when the CDC is asked, what are they doing in a missile site, this, the, answer, the only answer that I've heard is they're storing bandages. Mm-hmm. Wow. Oh, my God. It, 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 it ain't bandages. Yeah, um... It, I think what? that's a reasonable it, assumption, Bill. It ain't bandages. Well, I have I many, have a very sinking feeling there's something in that site that you don't want it to get out. And it's going to take the press to go after them. When did I, this happen? When did that transfer to the CDC happen? Pardon? Uh, I would guess 
at least four years ago, maybe more. Mm-hmm. And that's worth checking that, out. Yeah, yeah. We have no idea, and uh, it's a carefully guarded site, so they must prize those bandages. Well, is that uh, is that a public site yeah. that we could Google and learn about? Is it one of oh, the? You could find it on Google Earth. You can find mm-hmm. all these sites on Google Earth. Right, it's, right. Go north right. of uh, the city of Reardon. I'll help you find it if you want to look at it. Yeah, so so let's talk about wait, passive radar. Wait, wait, wait. One more thing. What? One more thing with the um, – I don't want to leave the silo just that because I wanted to just throw this out. If Because Bill and I would easily have bought – if we had – ever, if a silo ever crossed our path, we would have purchased it. We totally would have. We almost bought an entire island called Dumpling Island. And the fellow who bought it is the fellow who created the Segway. Uh, machine that that oh, yes. that guy yeah, and, yeah Dean Kamen Dean Kamen and and the island was um, not incorporated into the United States and so you could do your anyway so but we didn't buy the <laughs> island we came close but if I ended up with a silo like you've got I was wondering couldn't you build a magnificent um, place for growing mushrooms and yeah. eventually other things in a very stable environment you know you could kind of like there's no deer to worry about. So forth yeah. and so on. I mean, basically, it's almost like a um, Mars experiment. But couldn't you make it and turn the whole thing into a kind of a growing thing? Something could, like it would there are change many things. Thing. I could do, Nan. Uh, I, I, yeah. But right now, here's here's what my life is like. So you understand. Mm. I work or am on call two shifts per day, mm. seven days a week to run wow. the hotline. Wow. And uh, I'm working as hard as I've ever worked in my life to try to keep up with the flow of data, doing it, the only budget I have really is what I'm willing to throw at it. Mm -hmm. And I've tried for 22 years to raise money, to raise Mm -hmm. funds, so I can have a facility, so I can have a staff, so I can have a budget. But you know how difficult it is to raise money for UFO-related. Tell me about it. Right, it's right. about impossible. Right. And I've been to four billionaires to talk about passive radar, explaining to them that we can get away from the concept of disclosure. Everybody's talking about disclosure mm-hmm. in the UFO field, and I think that ta- that word tacitly implies when is the government going to tell us the truth? Which well, they already have, what? by the way. Oh, which they already have. Harry Truman in 1950 said Absolutely. these are saucers. We know what they are. In fact, yeah. if you were to run down the list of presidents since Harry Truman, Truman Eisenhower supposedly at the uh, on board the Franklin Delano Roosevelt um, in Operation Main Brace, uh, Richard Nixon and Jackie Gleason, John F. Kennedy and the secret Marilyn Monroe memos. Uh, 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 the transcript, um, Lyndon, uh, 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 Lyndon Johnson disappearing the, the way he did. Uh, I mean, you could go on and on. Um, uh, Jerry Ford. What he do he, is take a camera and interview Bill Clinton and say, Mr. President, uh, what happened there? There are two different stories. In fact, this issue was addressed on the Jay Leno program on Thanksgiving night. Thursday night by definition. And what did he say? And, 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 what did, and what was his answer? Had Greg Norman on. Yeah. And you know how he brings his guest on and then talks to him for a minute or two and then take a break right. and come back to the guest. He said, I want to talk to you about 
the night that President Clinton was at your compound, at your home, and what happened to, how was he injured? And the story that uh, Greg Norman told was that the president was standing in the driveway with Greg Norman. Mm-hmm. The president had a soft drink and he had a ham sandwich in the other hand, and allegedly his knee just gave way. That's what he I collapsed. heard. He collapsed on the driveway and they raced him to the airport and they spirited him back to Washington, D.C., and he was taken to Bethesda Naval Hospital. Well, at least he didn't well, choke on that ham sandwich like Mama Cass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that's what Greg Norman said. Well, I've heard other arguments that it's not very likely that a person who is jogging, and you may recall that Bill Clinton was, he exercised fairly regularly. Yeah. And so on, trying to project the image of a healthy, robust president. And it's very unlikely, I'm told by physicians, that somebody who is a jogger would have a ligament or a tendon just give way. Now, I'm not a medical specialist. I can't address that issue with any authority, and I may be overruled on that one in the final analysis, but it seems unlikely to me. And the coincidence that we have the biggest UFO event in the history of all ufology, number one. Number two, very strong allegations that the military forces were raised to DEFCON 3, directly from 5, skipping 4 altogether, and the President of the United States has moved very hurriedly. That, in my opinion, is a lot of coincidence, all happening within just a few minutes or possibly within a few seconds. Yeah, and then the total blackout of the news, (coughs) period, and that's huge. And then the President gives a pardon to the governor... who hoaxed, who faked a big UFO disclosure moment. And And he gives him a pardon. Yeah, I agree, Bill. And Leslie Keene really deserves a great deal of credit for having gotten the governor to come forward, Mm -hmm. Governor Symington. I really tip my hat in her direction for a wonderful job she did on that one. She did indeed, and and so did James Fox, who was a friend of of Symington's. Who had um, in- included Five Simonton in the second, in the sequel movie? Uh, I know what I saw. Yeah. Right. So now we can we we can and should talk about passive radar. Yes. What does it mean? And uh, the reason I put the photo up on the website and a link to the paper is so that people can see that it can be very small. It. Um, I have a photo of it, what looks like a little satellite dish. You know, the old yeah. the, the direct TV size on a vehicle. So, a yeah. Passive rate, yeah, very good question, Nancy, and thank you for addressing that issue. This is the subject that, in fact, I think my proposal to use passive radar is my greatest contribution to not just only the field of ufology, but my greatest academic contribution to this point in my life. And, and tell, us what, tell, us, tell us what it is, how it works. Or... Well, for example, as we talk on this program, I don't know if the program is going, being broadcast by off antennas by radio stations, but ra- commercial radio and television stations radiate their signal out in all directions. So some of it goes out into space. 
the short version of what passive radar is, is that that radiated signal, if it strikes something in the air, like an mm -hmm. airliner, like a flock of geese, like a satellite 120 miles above your head, that object might reflect that signal back down to Earth, mm -hmm. allowing us to detect something that has reflected the signal. Now, if we can detect those reflected signals and then analyze them, for example, how fast are they moving? Well, if they're moving at 45 miles an hour and they're 5,000 feet above the ground, probably a flight of geese. Mm -hmm. If it's at 35 or 40,000 feet above the surface of the earth and it's doing 550 miles an hour between Chicago and San Francisco, it's probably an airliner. Right. But if it's doing 50,000 miles a minute and it does a right angle turn, that's neither a goose nor an airliner. Mm -hmm. That is an object that would capture our interest immediately. And the passive radar system is very inexpensive. You're exactly correct. They're exquisitely simple mm -hmm. to set up. The hardware is very simple. In fact, a passive radar system is a little more complicated than the radio receiver in your automobile. Right. All it has to do is capture the signal. The really sophisticated part, and we have been able to build our own passive radar systems only within the last 20 years or so okay. since the development of modern computers, since the development of the uh, global positioning system. You need a very, very accurate clock. Mm -hmm. And the GPS is accurate to one part per billion, approximately. They're going to get even more accurate in the near term. And we can build a passive radar system and then build stations across the North American continent, mm -hmm. we can cover the airspace above Canada and the United States going out to the distance of the moon, moon's orbit from the surface of the Earth with six stations. Mm. With six stations? Six stations, we wow. estimate. And we will be able to detect UFOs directly. We will not have to rely on mm -hmm. some half-baked politician to deign to share with us the truth about UFOs. Okay, now, so you only need six stations the size of the station in that photo? Yes. And where would they be located? Equidistant? You would spread them out as far as, you would distribute them as equally across the North American continent as you could, and you would tune each of those stations to a radio or television station that might be 500 or 1,000 miles away. So under ordinary circumstances, most of the time, the receiver would not be able to hear the transmitted signal that it's tuned to listen to or listen for. However, when there's something above that serves as a reflection point for that signal, it would strike the reflection point and then the signal would be bounced back down to Earth, and that's when you start analyzing it for its characteristics. So, so it's you've a very, yeah, very so simple system. Have you built a prototype with the hardware? Well, the really the the daunting task is not the hardware. That's where All I was you going. Need is yeah. an antenna, 
a right. cable, a receiver, and a connection between your radio receiver and the computer. Mm-hmm. Where it grows complex is the software. Software, yeah. Mm-hmm. To analyze the signals. Mm-hmm. And our engineering team estimates that 90% of the cost of the prototype would be for the writing of the software. software our engineering yeah, yeah. team estimates that we could build a prototype for $750,000. Uh, probably a third of that if we could get somebody interested who has access to a lot of programmers. Why wouldn't the government itself want to do that? Because I could see one... At least Why one. Why would the government let us do this? Well, no, 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 no. I was thinking the department. Well, this would. I could see this as a DARPA project, only because if the if the Russians have stealth aircraft, then this passive radar system could defeat stealth because you're not talking about absorbing radar signals from active radar. You're talking about radio waves bouncing off an object. The government did build such a system back in the late 50s. We all know, we've all read that the U.S. government can tell, can detect and measure uh, astronauts' gloves that are released and tools, anything the size of a grapefruit or larger, we're told. The government tracked every time it went over the United States. The way it did that, was by using the Naval Space Surveillance System, which is a passive radar system. If you read my paper, mm-hmm. I recommend, I, I advocate that what we could have done while this system was still working, they're now building a replacement out in the mid-Pacific, but I advocated that we use the radiated signal that the government was broadcasting to illuminate all of these things in orbit above the United States and listen for the signals ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the government, using that system, must have been detecting UFOs every day. All the time. Well, in fact, one last point, if I may. I called the command center at Fort Stewart, Georgia. That was where the command center for the Naval Space Surveillance System was. And I called them cold. And I was put on hold, and a young gal came on the line who was a public uh, affairs officer with the U.S. Navy. And the instant she came on the line, she said, Mr. Davenport, I know who you are, and I feel uncomfortable even being on the telephone with you. I'm going to have to terminate this conversation right now. Thank you for your call. Click. Wow. Wow. Now, so and so, uh, yeah. I did not read the entire paper, and I'm looking at Project Aquarius right, right now. And I think yeah. that's what you're talking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this also leads to the question that because of the simplicity of passive radar, and because it's been around for so long, been around for sixty years. It's been around for so long yeah. as as a concept. Wouldn't you think that if the Russians had it? and assuming for argument's sake the Chinese have it, that our reliance on stealth aircraft against a peer enemy, they could illuminate a B-2 bomber. Yep. I suspect they can. And the day MUFON published my paper, I was invited by John uh, (coughs) Schusler, who then director, the international director. Yeah, he was a friend of mine. Yeah, John Schuster, he's a friend of mine. Great guy. 
Great guy, very yeah. capable, very talented. He invited me, he called me in December of uh, 2003, he said, Peter, we would like to have you as a speaker at the MUFON Symposium. So I wanted to do something really new, really different, not just a re- recitation of cases. And I said, I'm going to write a paper on the use of passive radar, and I presented that. Mm-hmm. So I sent my proceedings to MUFON, and they published them on the 6th of July, 2004, a Tuesday, I believe it was. The day they published my paper, I got a telephone call from a very senior case officer with the Central Intelligence Agency, mm-hmm. very well known to the UFO community. He said, Mr. Davenport, I am so-and-so. I'm a very senior officer at the CIA. He said, I have a Ph.D. in physics. First 20 years of my career with the CIA, I built passive radar systems. A colleague of mine just sent me the summary of your paper. He said, I'm calling to congratulate you and to tell you that if you build the system you describe in your paper, you will answer the question of whether UFOs are real or not. And why couldn't he provide you with a source of money to build a system? Since I think I know who you're talking about. He worked for the government. I know who you're talking about. He was still in the CIA. I presume it would have cost him his job, if not his freedom, to do so. Well, how how did you, did you invent this whole thing yourself, Peter? Do events, you say? No, did you invent the passive radar without realizing that, that, you know, the government has teams of people inventing the same thing? I started discovering things about passive radar that said, my God, they've been doing it for decades. Mm -hmm. The first patent for a passive radar system was awarded in the U.K. in 1927. So I'm not the first to recognize its power. Mm -hmm. But the Friday before Martin Luther King weekend in 1995, I was sitting there stunned by the amount of work that I was getting as a result of the hotline. Mm -hmm. When I took it over, I anticipated I'd be taking one, two, or three calls a week and within a week, I was taking one, two, or three dozen calls per day. Wow. And I panicked mm-hmm. because I couldn't keep up with the flow of data. Mm-hmm. And I Does said it? on this Friday before Martin Luther King weekend, I said, there's got to be some means for direct detection of UFOs. And then it hit me like a bombshell. I used to work in the venture investment uh, industry. We raised money for biotech firms, and in fact, I set up one, actually. Mm-hmm. And one of the companies that had come to us was Meteor Communications Corporation from Kent, Washington. They were looking for capital infusion. And it hit me like a bombshell that they built hardware that would bounce radio signals off of the ionized trails behind Meteor's hence the name of the company. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I said, wait a minute. If they can detect meteors, yeah. what else might they be able to detect? Mm. And that was the very beginning of a long trek in trying to build a passive radar system. Well, have I've you been, got... Yeah. I've well, have been you... four billionaires, and I have yet to raise a penny, even though these people profess to have an interest in UFOs. Yeah, like like, like, like Lawrence Lowe, Rockefeller. So. But, uh, I but, mean, but, but have you, have you um, been able to create a screen and enough software to be able to see some sort of uh, representation of what the radar array is doing? 
the passive radar? No, but one of the links that I sent you today mm-hmm. for the passive radar system that was built by a scientist at the MIT Haystack Observatory yeah. is operating just fine. There's another one at the University of Western Ontario, Peter Brown, built one, and I tried to communicate with him, and he did not respond to about eight communications. I proposed to SETI. Uh, I wrote Dr. Jill Tarter a note and said, you know, Mm. I, I know what your view of UFOs is, but here is a field where we could collaborate, building a passive radar system. Mm-hmm. And looking for intelligent life a little more close to Earth than where you're looking. And I will share with you something I've not shared before, but my next letter is going to be to Stephen Hawking and to his colleague, Keller, Mm -hmm. who are funding a major effort. I'm going to send them a letter and say, instead of spending $100 million looking hundreds of light years into space, Let's spend seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars yeah. and look much closer to home. Why don't you write to Elon Musk as well? Yeah, good point. Uh, I admire the guy tremendously. Now you know what, what? Okay, I'll just tell you the last thing that really strikes me because we have to leave because we're out of time. It is that you were finding a patent for a passive radar system as early as the late nineteen twenties. Yeah. Thank you. Okay, who had the patent? Uh, I don't know the answer to that question, Bill. It's a good question. And it's only rumor that the first patent was issued in 1927 in England. I don't know the details of that patent. You know, I think um, if if it's okay with you, Peter, off the air and just casually between us. I have to to go to bed, too, because I've got an early thing tomorrow. No, 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 that's not what I'm saying. I'm saying off the air, not tonight, but tomorrow. If if, if you could talk to Bill about a couple things and if you could talk to me about a couple things, we might be able to put some things together that might help this whole situation because I don't see why building that prototype, for example, couldn't be done by a TV studio, a TV company. That's what I'm thinking. Simply, you know... For, you know, show the world what they're going to get. You know, make it make it. Com- it's not a lot of money to a TV company. Not yeah. a lot of money. No, it's, it's a not set, a lot basically. of money, and I could see how it could be raised. Yeah, um, so, so if we we need to talk off the air and privately, we will. Just saying, you will set something up, and also come back again. I hope you yeah. come back on our show because we didn't get to any really of the cases, zero of yeah. the cases besides okay. the monster ones. And okay. An hour and a half has flown by and it, boy, it, has it been exciting. It, I'm I'm to thank you. So, so I want to thank our, I want to thank our guest, Peter Davenport from the National UFO Reporting Center and to everybody out there in Internet Radio Land. We are your co-hosts, Bill, that's me, and Nancy. Good night, everybody. Burns Broadcasting on Future Theater, live from the banks of Primrose Creek in beautiful downtown Silbury Village, Pennsylvania. Our guest next, well, I'll, we will let you know who our guest next week is. Um, Potentially Dennis Rogers, but we don't know yet. We don't know yet. Uh, but everybody, thanks for joining us. It was a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful two hours, and we will see you next week on Future Theater, and thanks to Peter Dapper.